Well, hello, good morning, ladies. Um, it is so good to be meeting together, um, and I'm glad you guys could all come this morning. Uh, I hope you had a profitable time just beginning to look through our passage um, of verses 9 through 17. Um, and yeah, with that, we'll dive in. So the year was 333 BC. King Darius III of Persia had rallied an army of, of an estimated 500,000 men to come against the invading threat of Alexander of Macedonia. Persian forces had come up against the Macedonian army a number of times already, but they had continually been unsuccessful to squash their opponents. The two armies met along a riverbank in the province of what is now Eastern Turkey. This was the first time that King Darius had led his troops instead of another general. Um, quoting from a, a history book from this time, it said, fierce fighting ensued. Darius was conspicuous in his high chariot, and Alexander obviously wanted the triumph of killing the king of kings. The carnage was immense. Most of Darius's best generals had been killed, and while the number of Macedonian dead was still very small. Darius's horses were injured and began to toss at the yoke, making Darius's perch very precarious. To save himself, he jumped down and mounted a horse, threw off his royal insignia, and fled the scene. His men, consequently, broke ranks and either surrendered or fled behind their hapless king. The Persian army was devastated, with perhaps 70,000 dead and 40,000 taken prisoner. Alexander's army, on the other hand, lost a mere 280 men. Among the prisoners were the mother of Darius, his wife, and two of his daughters, along with large quantities of treasure. The Persian army never should have lost that battle. They outnumbered the Macedonians at least four to one, and that ranges a lot depending on sources. Um, the battle was on their own home turf, but when the soldiers saw their king fleeing the scene, they lost their confidence. They lost heart and they fled. Now this is really similar to the temptation that Paul is cautioning his readers against in our passage of scripture today. In the center of our text, in verse 13, we see Paul say, therefore I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel. He is suffering and it could seem as though all hope is lost. And this is one key reason why he wrote the book of Ephesians to encourage the church there and to let them know that all hope is not lost. The enemy has not won, so do not lose heart. Now you'll see throughout our passage phrases such as confidence, boldness, not to lose heart, being strengthened with power, being rooted and grounded and having strength. Paul wanted the Ephesian believers and us today to know that although it may seem like we are losing, Although our leaders may be suffering, although Paul himself was even in prison for proclaiming the gospel, our God is powerful. He is still at work, and by his spirit, he can unite, guard, and sanctify his children. Now, our passage this morning acts a little bit like a sandwich, or what is loosely called a chiastic structure, if you want to get literary about it. Um, we have this petition to not lose heart in verse 13, which acts as the focal point of our passage. Or you could say that it's the butter and the sliced ham at one of our uh, church fellowships. 
that's then sandwiched between two large reasons not to lose heart. So let's look at this first reason that Paul gives us as to why we do not need to lose heart, found in verses 7 through 12. And the, the point of that passage is to do not lose heart because the gospel is going forth. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul explained that God's ultimate plan is to unite all things to himself, things on earth and things in heaven. We've seen that God has planned since before the foundations of the earth to pour out his great love and mercy on us to make us alive together with Christ. And then in the verses immediately preceding our passage, in verse 2, 13, we read that in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And then further down in verse 19, we read, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And this is not just for the Jew, the chosen people of God since the time of Abraham, but it now includes the Gentiles, you and me, to be fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. We can now say with the psalmist, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. I'm thankful that we were able to spend our week last week focusing on missions here at MABC, that we were able to hear about the gospel going forth among the nations from um, Steve, and I think Jeff Smythe was sharing as well, and from Kay last week, and um, Emma even on our Wednesday study. Um, I'm thankful for workers like these, like Kay, Steve, and Jeff, who are giving of themselves to further the spread of the kingdom. This is the mystery of the gospel. And this is the same gospel which Paul himself was made a minister. Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, blameless under the law, a zealous persecutor of the church, yet by God's grace, by the working of his power, made to be a preacher to the Gentiles of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now we see in our passage four concentric circles. I'm really bad at drawing, but there's one on the board. Um, of the gospels going forth through Paul's ministry. First, we see that the gospel um, went to Paul, a Jew, the least of all the saints, but then it went forth. It was given to Paul to preach to the Gentiles, um, but then as we see in verse nine, Paul has been bringing the light for everyone. What is the mystery hidden for ages? And then in verse 10, we see that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is now being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The gospel is going forth, so do not lose heart. Now the first two circles are a bit easier to understand. The gospel spread to Paul and then he preached it to the Gentiles. But it's the third and fourth circles that might use, might help us to have a little bit of explanation. So that third circle represents that part of Paul's mission was to illuminate for everyone the mystery of the gospel. Now this doesn't mean that Paul was to preach to every single person in the Roman Empire. Um, nor does it mean universal salvation or that every person will be saved. Instead, it means that Paul felt a responsibility of imparting the gospel to all of humanity, Jew and Gentile. This is similar to what Paul says in Romans 1.14, where he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And then in that fourth circle, um, it also requires a closer look. So verse 10 states that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now we know that there is a spiritual realm. 
we see that interaction between God and Satan in Job 1, or just other references to the spiritual powers in places like 1 Peter 1. We'll see it again later in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, one commentator explains this verse by saying, The church does not simply exist for the purpose of saving souls, though this is an important and a marvelous work. The supreme purpose of the church, as Paul makes explicit here, is to glorify God by manifesting his wisdom before the angels, who can then offer greater praise to God. The angels, including the fallen angels, can see God's power in a myriad of ways throughout history. From God's glory in creation, to his covenant faithfulness to the Israelites, from his love displayed at the cross, and now to his multifaceted wisdom on display through the church. God is making himself known to all, those in heaven and those on earth. And this is where we come in. We are the church. We are a room full of women from different backgrounds. We have different racial backgrounds, social, economic, circumstantial. We have different gifts, abilities, convictions, and personalities. Yet we are brought together by having one thing in common, the most important thing. We have been loved by God, made alive and united to him. We have been reconciled to God and to one another. Because of Jesus and the Spirit's work in our heart, we can love our sister who we don't naturally click with. We can inconvenience ourselves to serve one another. We can stretch and challenge one another when it isn't easy. For we are members of the same body, universally and locally united together in the church, unable now to display the glory of God's wisdom in his plan to unite all things to himself, even making this known in a mysterious way to the spiritual forces in this world. God's gospel is going forth, so do not lose heart. Oh, and if that wasn't enough reason for confidence, this was all according to God's eternal plan, now revealed and completed in Jesus Christ. God has been in control since the beginning of time, and he will continue to be. Now, I know this idea of God being in control from eternity past and into eternity future can make him seem so distant from us and from our everyday lives. He is so not like us that we can feel intimidated. But we have no need for that. For when Jesus Christ is our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence. Or as we read in Hebrews 4, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So friend, if you are feeling weary, if you are feeling beat down by the cares of this world, if you are feeling burdened by the rejection of the gospel by a family member or a friend, do not lose heart. The gospel's going forth. God's plan is being accomplished. And you can come to the Lord with those thoughts. You can come to him with those weights, those emotions and fears. And you can bring them with confidence. Because our God cares for us. And through the blood of Jesus, he has made a way for us to come to him. So do not lose heart. Now, the second reason that Paul gives in our passage as to why we do not need to lose heart is found in verses 14 through 19. Do not lose heart because the Father strengthens you. 
Paul continues his train of thought with a prayer for the Ephesian believers. He makes two requests of God, both beginning with this idea of being strengthened, and then each request is followed with a reason for that request. So that's why I said, strengthened that, strengthened that, that there's a request to be strengthened and then a reason for it. Now, before he jumps into his requests, Paul uses some beautiful language to describe our God. He calls him our father. Believers are the sons and daughters of God, and we can address the God who created the universe as our Abba, or our father. Paul also uses a play on words here in the Greek to say that every family in heaven and on earth is named from the father. All saints of all the ages who've trusted in God as father have been adopted into his family and are God's children. The dividing lines of hostility have been broken down between believers from various periods of history and various racial, social, economic backgrounds, and we are all now members of the family of God. Now moving into Paul's requests for these believers, first he prays that God would strengthen the believers through the indwelling of the Spirit and of Christ in their hearts, so they may be firmly rooted in love. Now grammatically in the English, this can get a little confusing. Um, we see the request in verse 16 for the spirit to strengthen the inner being, but then it looks like the result or the so that is that Christ may dwell in our hearts. But we know that when someone becomes a believer, um, when they have faith in Jesus as Lord, then he, Christ, and the spirit indwell the believer at that point. It's not like you could become a Christian and then eventually Christ will dwell in your hearts. It's not a progressive um, overtime process, but comes part and parcel with salvation. So Paul's request here is not for Christ and the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in the hearts of the Ephesian believers, but that knowing that they are already believers and are indwelt by the Spirit and by Christ, Paul prays that the believers would be strengthened with the Spirit's power. Does that make sense? I uh, had a hard time and read a lot of commentaries to try to wrap my head around it. Um, so when the believers tempted to lose heart, to be discouraged, they're able to turn to the Holy Spirit that indwells them, for the strength and power to persevere. And when the Holy Spirit is your lifeline or your anchor and your strength, you will be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Now, I'm sure we've all seen pictures or videos of the destruction um, left by hurricanes, Ian and Fiona uh, last, the couple weeks ago. Um, I mean, just image after image of demolished buildings, eroded coastlines and severe flooding. Homes look like piles of toothpicks, roads like overflowing rivers, and some landmarks are not even recognizable anymore. Yet one thing that doesn't seem to crumble in the same way as man-made structures are trees. There'll be a home flattened, like demolished to the ground, but yet the trees in the front yard are still standing. They are rooted and grounded in a foundation that is stronger than the cement footings of our homes. And this is how our lives will be when we are strengthened by the Spirit when we realize that we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we cling only to Christ, the result will be that we will be rooted and grounded in him, a sure and steady anchor for our inner beings. Now connected to this being rooted and grounded in Christ's love, Paul's second request in his prayer for the Ephesian believers is that God would strengthen them to comprehend the love of Christ with the result that they would be filled with the fullness of God. Now, if we want to fight against the temptation to lose heart, there's arguably nothing more powerful than comprehending the love of Christ. Love that knows no bounds. Love that through Jesus, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Scripture abounds with descriptions of Christ's love. From Genesis to the Psalms, Hosea to the Gospels, Romans to Revelation, there is no better way to know Christ's love than to be abiding in his word. As we read in John 15, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now this love, the love of Christ for his bride, is beyond our understanding. Um, As one commentator put it, knowing Christ's love takes us beyond human knowledge because it's from an infinitely higher source. Paul is speaking here of the love of Christ, his very own love that he must place in our hearts before we can love him or anyone else. The world cannot comprehend the great love of Christ because it cannot comprehend Christ. Worldly love is based on attraction that therefore lasts only as long as the attraction. Christ's love is based on his own nature and therefore lasts forever. Worldly love lasts until it's offended or rebuffed. Christ's love lasts despite every offense and every rebuff. Worldly love loves for what it can get. Christ's love loves for what it can give. What is incomprehensible to the world is to be normal living for the child of God. And then finally, Paul gives his purpose for this request, which is for believers to know Christ's love, and that is so that they may be filled with the fullness of God. To be filled with God means, by definition, to be emptied of self. It's not to have much of God and little of self, but it is to have all of God and none of self. This is the gospel in the flesh, dying to self and living to Christ. And when we are so totally abandoned of ourselves and living for God, we won't lose heart. We will not walk in fear or anxiety or discouragement. We will be being made new, walking in a manner worthy of our calling, bearing with one another in love, eager for unity, being kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. We'll be walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So there we have it, believer. Stay the course. Do not lose heart. Because the gospel is going forward. Because you can come to God as your father with confidence and boldness. Because your heart can be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you can be rooted and grounded in Christ's love. Because you can know Christ's love which surpasses understanding. And because you can be filled with the fullness of God. Let me pray as we close. Dear Lord God, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for your love that knows no bounds and that is beyond our understanding, God. I pray, Father, that um, for all of us women, Lord, that we would not lose heart, but that we would be so abiding in you and knowing you, Lord, that we would be so in love with your word and in love with um, just spending time with you, that, Father, it would be your love that's flowing out of us and that would be, um, yeah, just overflowing 
out of our hearts and lives. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.